0: Well, good morning again, everyone. It's good to see you. It's, it's always good for Carol and me to be back with you. This is, I think I'm part of your family. Uh, thanks for having us. Uh, I wish it were under better circumstances with the death of Steve's mother and all, but I'm privileged to be here and to bring the comforting and healing Word of God to you this morning. So, please pray with me. Father, we're grateful for your Word to us this morning from your Apostle Peter. May, you pay, may we pay heed to it because it's your Word. Your Word is always good for us. It teaches us how to be godly Christian men and women. It reproves corrects us when we sin. Certainly it trains us in righteousness. May we now receive your preached word, digest it, be comforted by it, and live it out in our lives to your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, open them there. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 and we've already read a portion of it this morning in the in the service that's good it's going to be reinforced this is God's words first peter chapter 2 beginning with verse 4 as you come to him a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This is God's word for us this morning. Uh, let me say a few words here at the beginning. Uh, we know from our experience that in the rush of modern life, uh, you know, I think it's all too easy to, uh, to lose sight of what's important, to lose sight of what our priorities ought to be. You know, under pressure, people get frustrated, they get agitated, they get all wobbly. They tend to focus on the urgent or on what or who is beating them up at the moment. You know, we all do this at times, don't we? I know I do. I won't put any motives on you. You know, but here's the thing. The urgent, the situation that's right before us, the one confronting us, is not always the most important, is it? So I think it's good to be reminded that when things go south, what our priorities as God's people should be. And that's what Peter does for us in this wonderfully comforting passage before us this morning. These Christians to whom Peter writes in Asia Minor, they're under the gun, they're under pressure, not from from being busy like we often are, but under pressure for persecution, for what they believed, you know, scattered as aliens, as elected exiles in a pagan world, you know, I think it would have been easy for them to lose sight of what their priorities should be. It would have been easy to cave into the pressure of the culture. And so Peter wants them to stop. He wants them to take a breath, you know, Look beyond the urgent and see their priorities so that they could fulfill the glorious purpose to which God had called them to. He wants to remind these people and us of what's really important. And so he gives us two priorities to remember here in this text. That first is that we are to be a royal priesthood. We are to be a holy priesthood. And second, we have been saved by Christ to worship God. Peter says that we're to keep these two things the main things, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our situations. These are our two priorities as God's people to understand what it means to be a royal priesthood, what it means to be true worshipers of God. So that's where we're headed this morning. Now, I need to warn you right up front, You know, we're not going to go through this passage verse by verse as we Presbyterians traditionally like to do, and this isn't a three-point sermon. In fact, it's a two-point sermon. So we're going to jump around a bit this morning, uh, look at these two themes, these two priorities which run throughout the entire passage in different places, so settle down, don't get too nervous, get over it. Uh, change is good. You know, at least that's what, that's what Carly tells me all the time. Uh, so let's, uh, let's dive in here and look at this first priority of the priesthood of all believers. You know, we, we come to a, I know you're all familiar with this passage, and we come to a passage like this, uh, it's familiar to us. We think we know what it means, but, but sometimes we don't. Or at least I don't think we appreciate the full meaning of it, or appreciate how perhaps outside forces maybe influence the way that we think about this passage. For example, I don't think we we often appreciate just how much power our secular culture has over our grasp of ideas and concepts. I don't think we always appreciate how the culture shapes our thinking in ways that we often don't understand and fail to realize. Now, how did it happen, for example, that the early church came so easily to believe that a celibate life, especially for ministers, was to be preferred to a married life? In the blink of a historical eye, it became a law that ministers must remain unmarried. The beginning the beginning of a long history of pain and sorrow and sin, which continues today in the Roman Catholic Church. That law continues to wreak havoc in the Catholic Church. But dear ones, I am aware of nothing in the Word of God that says that pastors or priests have to be unmarried. Where does it say that? It doesn't. How about the issue of slavery in the church of the American South? You know, we shake our heads. Nobody looks back on that history with approval. We think it's, it's shameful that the church was involved to the extent that it was in that particular institution. You know, how was it not obvious to them that what they were doing was wrong? Well, it wasn't obvious because of the power of culture. You know, if you don't think, if you don't realize that culture is powerful in influencing ideas and behaviors, just live for one year at the University of Arizona or any American university. And just think of the pressure on Christian college students to conform, to abandon their Christian values when they leave high school, head off to college. You know, most people want to conform. We want to fit in, we don't want to be different, still less do we want the people of our world to look down on us, to you know, to to think that we're strange. You know, I remember Dr. R.C. Sproul telling one of his seminary classes to be very, very, very careful of culture. That people will do almost anything for the sake of a relationship, for the sake of being included. Is it any wonder that feminism, now such a powerful force in modern American life, should have succeeded in many churches today? to overturn 2,000 years of loyalty to the plain speaking of the Bible regarding the relationship between men and women in marriage, regarding the relationship between men and women in the church. Is it any wonder that modern orthodoxies regarding sexual freedom should have so Quickly made their way into the church, in the Christian churches, that a generation ago would never have imagined thinking what they now think. Secular culture has indeed infiltrated the church. Now, that's enough. You know, I put all this before you because we have here this morning, I think, a good example of how our modern culture makes it difficult to understand and appreciate our understanding of this important term, the priesthood of all believers. Now, why is that so? You know, first of all, this idea about a priesthood is not a new idea as some would think. You know, we read this text, Peter actually ties it back to the Old Testament, Marty read Exodus 19.6 here in particular you know, as the basis for the truth that God's people form a royal priesthood. Now, in that passage at that time that Marty read, Israel Israel was gathered at Mount Sinai. They were waiting for God to give them the Ten Commandments. And Marty said, the Lord told Israel that she would be for him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, by that he meant... Certainly, he wasn't criticizing the Levitical priesthood, but that he meant he provided Israel remained faithful to his covenant. They would have a holy God for their king. And in that kingdom, they would serve him in a priestly way. They too would offer sacrifices to him, sacrifices of praise, offerings of every kind. They would have an intimate relationship with him. They would have access with him to his presence. They would have a service to offer him. So, in the Old Testament, every Israelite was a priest in a general sense. Now, even as certain Israelites, you know, we know of the tribe of Levi, they were priests in a special sense. And I think today it's, it's very similar. We see that every Christian is a priest, but then every believer has always been a priest. And that doesn't take away, it's not in conflict with the existence of an office in the church that has special and specific priestly functions, such as Pastor Steve Cavallaro, ruling Elder Marty Beal. You know, Paul writes over in Romans 15 that he was a priest because he was a preacher of the word. But if Peter was thinking of the Old Testament when he wrote about this royal priesthood to which all Christians belong, what did he mean by that? Well, the first thing Peter does here is that he relates our life to that of the Lord himself. He says, Jesus is a living stone, and, we, and we're like living stones. Look again there at, chapter, uh, at verses 4 through 6. Will not be put to shame. In other words, our priesthood is directly related to his. Our priesthood draws its meaning from his. You now what Peter means by calling Jesus Christ a stone, he explains by citing in verse six, he cites here Isaiah 28:16. That's where the Messiah is called a stone, called a tested stone. It's called a precious cornerstone. Now, in that context, if you recall, Isaiah was disabusing the princes of Israel of their confidence that Jerusalem would never be conquered, that it was impregnable to conquest. And Isaiah said very clearly, no, not going to happen. The only building that will stand secure, no matter the opposition, is the house of God of which the coming King Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, I think most of us in this room know what a cornerstone is. I'm not an expert, but it's the foundation of the foundation. It's the first stone to be laid. It's the the stone that establishes the angle and the level of all subsequent stones. You you stonemasons know all this. I don't. So that's one thing. Then Peter goes on in verse 5, and he extends that metaphor of Christ as the foundation stone of the temple of God. He says that God's people, you and I, are the house built on that foundation, and each believer is a stone of that house. God's people are being built up as a spiritual house. And what is a spiritual house for? Well, it's for worship, where offerings are presented to God, where His praises are proclaimed for the salvation that He has given to us. We are living stones in a spiritual house, which is a reference to the church as a worshiping, serving community in the world, not only on Sunday when we gather for worship, corporate worship, but in daily life. So we serve the Lord and make sacrifices for his sake. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. And it's in this context that God's people are described here as a body of priests, a priesthood. Now, an Old Testament priest, as you know, was someone who was holy because his work brought him into close proximity to God. He had an access to God that others didn't have. He was someone who served God. He, he facilitated the worship of God. He had a special relationship with God. And here's an interesting point. The Old Testament book of Exodus tells us that the particular holiness of the Old Testament priest served as a picture of the general holiness of of all of God's people. Now, that's very much like the text in 1 Timothy 3, which speaks specifically of the lives of elders to lead. Yet that can be applied to all Christians regardless of age, sex, or station of life. Now, all of that, I think, is clear enough to us. Doesn't cause us any problems. We get it. Here's here's what's more difficult. I think what's more difficult for us Christians in the West to grasp is that the biblical concept of this general priesthood is a corporate concept. It's a corporate concept. And here's where our culture comes in to influence is how we see this concept of the priesthood of all believers. Now, Peter is describing here The individual believer, he's describing you and me as a living part of an entire household. And what he's saying, as living stones, the meaning of our lives is determined by our relationship to the whole, to the entire body of believers organized into the church, organized into the house of God. And we cannot miss that. That's the key thing here that Peter's trying to get across to us. Look what he says here. You know, the Bible in general, and Peter here specifically, he doesn't call us priests. He calls us a priesthood. In verse 5, we're a spiritual house. We're a holy priesthood. Verse 9, we're a chosen people. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. Do you see what he's doing here? He's looking at us us from this vantage point, not as individual believers in our distinctiveness. He's looking at us in our unity as a priesthood and a nation. He's talking about the church. Now, he views individual believers here, you and me, as stones, each of which takes his or her place in a house in a temple that's being built. We're individual stones being pieced together by Christ. And how is Christ doing that? Well, we're chosen and shaped for our individual position by God himself. And we're placed into into position in this house by Christ himself. Now, all the stones in this temple are not identical. They're different. These distinctive stones, they're chosen, they're shaped, they're placed, not to draw attention to themselves, but to contribute to a building in which God dwells. And the placing of each stone is only part of a long work. It's begun thousands of years ago, and which is going to continue till the end of the age when Christ comes back again. Now, Each stone is important. Peter isn't saying that they aren't. But dear ones, he is saying that the purpose of each stone can only be realized in its union with all the other stones. I think he's saying very clearly that you and I are building blocks out of which together when properly arranged, a spiritual house, a church can and will be built. So you see, to Peter here, the house is a great thing. All the stones contribute to the formation of this house, and I hope you see that. But herein lies the problem. You know, I think many Christians here in the West don't typically think of this priesthood of believers in this corporate sense. They see it more in individualistic terms, and I think that's very clearly the impact of the culture. You know, we live in a democratic tradition, that places a lot of emphasis, you know, on individuals. And as that principle came to be worked out, I think, in American public life, it served a fragment, to isolate, to divide the pole of culture. Now we are first a mass of individuals whose connection to one another, I think, is increasingly vague, weak, contentious often. You know, our communities, such as they are, they've become just a welter of rival groups, each viewing the other with suspicion. I think they're sure of only one thing, that each group has to look out for itself, because no one else is going to care for it. You know, just look at our politics today. It's based on identity. Black, woman, gay, straight, you name it all of its identity politics with one group pitted against another. That's our culture. It's your culture. It's my culture. These are the influences that bear down on us every day. And who can deny that this culture has exercised a profound influence on the thinking of many American Christians? You know, I don't, I, I don't want to stretch this point. I don't think I'm stretching the point to say that many Christians today are inclined... I think virtually without too much thought, to think of this priesthood of believers to which we belong in terms of our individual access to God. Our own obligation to pray, to serve, our own relationship to Christ, direct, immediate, intimate. Now, that individual perspective is important. Peter would not deny that there is great emphasis in the Bible. It's you know clearly placed upon an individual Christian's life and walk. We should read and study the Bible and evaluate its teachings ourselves. You know, that's in our DNA, that's a Reformation principle. We cut our teeth on that. But that being said, he is arguing here that there is equally a profoundly corporate character. To Christian life, a solidarity of the body of Christ, a conviction that the meaning of every believer's life is found in his or her being part of a community of faith of the church. Just as it is true that Christ loved me and gave himself up for me, so it is true that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. So Peter, I think, is saying here, you know, I don't want to beat a horse to death, but it's the church and not the individual believer who is the bride of Christ. And as I look around today, it seems that that's an understanding of life that many American Christians have trouble assimilating into their thinking. You know, it's interesting, most converts don't hear about the church until after he's gone forward in some kind of evangelistic meeting or confessed faith at a retreat or in someone's living room. He may never be told that his Christian life, to be authentic at all, must be the life of someone who lives in the most intimate and structural fellowship with a community of believers like himself. And that his great calling as a Christian is to serve the Lord in and through that community. You see, that's precisely why church membership is so important. You know, he doesn't see the church as his home. He doesn't see the church as his mother, his place of life and work, his family, his calling, you know, his very body. And all those are ways that the Bible views the church. He doesn't think of himself as a stone in the wall of a spiritual house shaped and put there by Christ to contribute to the building in which God dwells. He doesn't see that there is but one institution in this world which will exist in the next. It's not the nuclear family. It's this family. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Enough of that. All of this is to say, this is one of Peter's great themes here. He sees this spiritual house. He sees the church. Not as a way station for travelers. Not as a place offering refreshment for pilgrims. Not as a domicile where individual families may reside, though in a sense it's all those things but he sees it as a temple where the praises of God are proclaimed, where God is served, from which His name is proclaimed to the world. And you see, I think this is the importance that Peter places here on this term, priesthood of all believers, as opposed to an emphasis on individual priests. You know, there's other places in the Bible which talks about individuals. but it's, Peter is not denying Individual roles as Christians. But it very definitely lays the stress here, stressed here, on the way we work and perform, the work we accomplish together in the church. May I lovingly say this to you, dear ones. Peter says here that the Lord is not as interested in you as a priest as he is in your being part of the priesthood. And as a priesthood, he looks upon the church as the great agent of his work, the great agent of his cause and of his kingdom in this world. Okay, enough said on that. That's one priority that we should have as God's people. It's our sense of place, our sense of purpose in this world, our union into a single spiritual house, Desert Springs Presbyterian Church forming a priesthood in that house for the service of God. Well, let's go. Let's quickly move on, and in the time we have left, let's look at this other central theme of this passage, which is the primacy of worship in the Christian life. You know, no one can read this passage carefully without noticing the emphasis Peter places on how God's grace to us in Christ has turned us into a worshiping community. Peter says that this is what God's salvation has made of us. Look there at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Why? Well, it's to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9. You are a royal priesthood. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light." Now, a little grammar. In this paragraph, verses 4 through 10, you know, the, this reference to our being made a holy priesthood in order to offer worship to God, this is what the experts, here comes the grammar, it's what the experts call an inclusio. You don't have to remember that name. You know, and uh, you know what an inclusio—it's a single paragraph that sets off by similar statements at the beginning and the end to bracket the paragraph, and, and basically to identify the writer's main theme or his point of emphasis. Now, clearly, verse 11 goes off in a totally different direction; begins a new paragraph rather than ending the paragraph that started back in in verse 4, and it's all the more the case that these verses, 4 through 10, are about how those who believe in Jesus Christ are worshipers of God. So that's your grammar lesson, okay? Uh, That's uh, that's what's called an inclusio, and you can forget all that. So in this account of what it means to be a Christian, what's happening here? Peter says at the beginning and again at the end that God's purpose in choosing us His purpose in redeeming us through Christ, in granting us this new birth, calling us to faith in Him, is that we might worship Him. That's in in verse 4, and then near the end in verse 9. And in light of what we've just said about the priesthood of believers, his emphasis clearly falls on the corporate worship of the church. Christians are viewed here as part of a community of faith. Their actions as the actions of an entire household. People, priesthood, nation. Again, I have to emphasize that corporate worship doesn't invalidate or make unnecessary individual worship. They don't conflict with one another. Actually, they serve one another. I think that he or she who worships best in church is one who has worshiped in private, vice versa. We pretty much know that what we've been saved to do everything that we do is to glorify and praise God. That we are made this kingdom of priests that we might declare the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We know that. That's not the problem. The problem is when we look within ourselves and note what we think and what we do. If you're like me and you are, We're ashamed to admit that such a holy purpose far too often does not dominate our thoughts or actions in any obvious way. That's the problem. We don't always do what we know. You know, these people Peter was writing to were being persecuted. Today, we're often too busy with the press of daily life to give much thought to God's glory. Some, there's a lot of reasons for that. Sometimes we're concerned about our reputations. Sometimes we're too bowed down by weariness, disappointments of life, or we're so beguiled by the pleasures of life. We're so dazzled by its attractions, but God forgive us. The praise of the holy and triune God seem rather paltry in comparison. And I think you here this morning know the truth of that. It's, our, it's, it's the very nature of our sin to put ourselves before the Lord, to praise and love ourselves above Him. You know, Knowing our failure is not the problem. We listen to Peter's words here in guilty silence, to our own indictment. So I'm not going to spend my time convincing us of our fault. We already know that. But I do want to leave us this morning with just one thought that might help us out here. It's from a Scottish Presbyterian by the name of John Duncan. Maybe you've heard of John Duncan. John Duncan was called Rabbi. He was called Rabbi Duncan because he was a missionary to Jews in Hungary in the 19th century. And then later he was a professor of Hebrew He was always an extraordinary perceptive theologian, master of the Christian life. Duncan was famous for his sayings. And in thinking about this passage in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, this is what he said about it. He said, as long as I'm thinking of Christ, I am happy. As long as I'm thinking of Christ, I am happy. Now, happy used to be a good word. Not so much today. So take it the way it was used by Rabbi Duncan back then. I like that word. I use that word all the time. Now, it may sound simplistic. It's not. But it may sound simplistic. I think that saying seems to me to be about right. You know, I might not be giddy. I might not be smiling in the midst of the difficulties and troubles of my life. Steve Cavallaro probably not smiling now. But thinking about who Christ is, what he did a long time ago, and what he's doing now, and what he's going to do, thinking about that makes me happy. Thinking about that gives me peace. Thinking about that clears my mind. You know, that's what Duncan's doing here with this pithy little saying. I think he's reminding us. And when God's people come face to face with Christ himself, everything else sort of recedes into the background. Not in a bad way, but in a good way. And isn't that what Peter is also emphasizing when he emphasizes worship here? In Peter's mind, when God looms before us, when Christ and redemption in heaven fill our hearts and minds, when we're moved and stirred by the wonder of all those things, everything else, I think, takes its proper place in our lives. The things that otherwise loom too large grow smaller and smaller. They take their rightful place at the feet of these gigantic and eternal things, the things for which we worship and give glory to God. Dear ones, we were made to worship. What is the chief end of man? You know what it is. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You know, Peter says that the worship of God, the uttering of his praise, the offering of sacrifices, Peter says here that's nothing less than the path to the fullness of life. It's a path to happiness, or joy, if you prefer that, if you prefer that word. God has told us how to be happy, to use John Duncan's saying. He's told us how to make the most of our life. He, he saved us to be happy. And the best way, the surest way to be happy is to praise the God of love himself, to worship him, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to him. You now, if, if you would look at my Bible right now, you would see I, I've written that, that little quote down in the margin right here, at 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. It's a wise saying. I've written it down so that I'll remember it. As long as I'm thinking of Christ, I'm happy. It's not as over to forget the course of our individual walks with God or that we're not going to care about the spiritual condition of our families, our children. Of course we will. But all of that interest will be taken up in the sense we have, the the living, joyful sense we have, the happiness we have that God's great purpose in our lives individually and in that of our families is the part we play, the role we fulfill in the one great house, priesthood of God. I love this church. You know I do. We serve God together for 12 glorious years, serving him as a priesthood of believers, as a worshiping community of faith. And each of you sitting here, It's a vital piece of this house called Desert Springs Presbyterian Church, contributing to its life, to its work, and together in concert with other like-minded churches, powerfully and beautifully proclaiming the name and the glory of the living God in Christ His Son to our benighted and dying world." Dear ones, this is the need of the hour. You know, we look around, we see the church in the West withering. The need of the hour is to recover the Christian's own commitment to his or her life as that of a living stone in the temple of God, to realize the phrase that all of us belong to that holy priesthood. No single stone can make a temple, only many together, each fit into its place. And I earnestly pray that our God would continue this magnificent work in your midst. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word of truth for us this morning. May we indeed see that our individual lives are best fulfilled as living stones fitted together and serving in your church. May that be increasingly true here in this body, part of your body called Desert Springs. May this dear congregation, this church built like that, be a force and power in this community and in the world for your glory and praise and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.